Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is March 27th, 2020. This is episode 2627 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we're having an expert counsel show. I'll tell you that today's show might be a little shorter than you're used to. Um, I'm just basically cleaning out all the expert counsel segments that I have. When I'm done with today's show, I have no... Um, no reserve of expert counsel segments. And there's two things going on here that are doing that. One is the expert counsel are people, too, and they're out dealing with whatever they're dealing with in the middle of all this COVID crap, and it is monopolizing what people think about, what people do, and affecting people's lives a great deal. So there is less in, there's less coming from the expert counsel. But the other side and the bigger side, and if you want – you know, an expert counsel show next week, maybe I can make that happen. If you want one by the following week, I'm sure I can make that happen. But you know what I'm going to tell you? I need then questions. What's happened, I have not received maybe but one question, two at the most, for an expert counsel member in the past 10 days. Because everybody is consumed with COVID, 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 which I'm, I'm a little surprised that we haven't had any for Doc Bones. Of course, he's pretty much been on the air and answered most of what people would ask him about COVID. So it's up to y'all. I will make do either way. Uh, I will try to give this audience what it's looking for and what it wants. So with that in mind, um, if you want expert counsel shows, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC expert in the subject line. And I may go into the TSP forum and, and dr dr drum up some questions that way, too. Uh, if, you, if you use the forum on Facebook, just consider um, keep an eye out for that and post your questions and be direct as possible with them if you do them that way in there because sometimes that gets us more. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we are going to talk about N95 masks with Doc Bones, specifically how facial hair affects them. Uh, and also, I have another, because I have so few questions, I'm going to do two from Doc Bones today. I have one on getting the most out of annual physical exams. Probably not a lot of those going on right now, but I bet you there'll be lots of them going around, uh, going on not very far from now. It might be hard to actually get into your doctor for regular examinations uh, due to backlog, because even though doctor offices are open, most people are kind of staying away from them unless they need to be there. Uh We're going to have Nick Ferguson talk about developing wind breaks on your property with self-propagation of trees. Uh, Jessica Dixie Mills is going to talk about an annoying thing that happens when you're hiking with burrs and debris getting your boots and what you can uh, what you can do about that using something called gators, uh, not gators like alligators, but gators like gators, G-A-I-T-E-R-S. And uh, Derek Bonpietro has some advice for us on taking care of. Older but newer diesel trucks, the ones that were designed to run on a little silver diesel, but before we started having the additives uh, going into them. And then I am going to do a segment on COVID, but it's going to be a little bit different than what I've been doing about it up till now. But it is going to be something I've been saying since the beginning, and I'm going to be mindful and I'm going to be careful not to allow confirmation bias into it. I'm just going to explain the principle that could be at play here, of what you call the denominator being much larger than we think. Uh, quite a bit has come out from researchers lately that are pushing us in this direction. Um, I actually have some speculation. It's pure speculation. Some speculation that maybe even 
Uh, people in government are being beginning to take a look at this and maybe consider it. Uh, there is no doubt the worst place in the United States for the COVID epidemic in our country right now is New York, and specifically New York City and the surrounding areas. The hospitals there are are absolutely overwhelmed. They're, they're pushed past their limit. I, I heard a report today of two people running on a single respirator today because that's better than them both dying, even though there's some risk in doing that. Um, there are 2,000 ventilators on the way to New York, but ventilators themselves are not enough. You need people to actually you know, take care of patients. The hospital staff is pushed to the limit. And in the middle of all this, while screaming and yelling and gnashing of teeth about Trump wanting to kill us all because he says he's going to reevaluate things at the end of the 15 days and consider possibly reopening parts of the country, not everything, everywhere, uh, around Easter. In the middle of all that, Andrew Como said yesterday, we are responding to this based on what we know about the 1920 Spanish influenza pandemic. And the differences between, let's say, St. Louis, where they closed the schools, versus Philadelphia, where they did not, with the stay-at-home orders. And as we look more and more, I'm beginning to question whether locking everything down was the right decision. That's not the orange man. That's Andrew Como in the middle of the crisis, as bad as it gets. Why? Well, maybe, not definitely, maybe that the denominator, the total number of infected, is way bigger than we think it is. Like a lot bigger. Like 10x, 20x, or even more. There's something that's come out recently called the Oxford Model. It's a different group of epidemiologists than the ones that produce what's known as the Imperial Model, which is the one where a half a million people across the world are supposed to die from this thing, a doomsday model. Well, the guys behind the Oxford model said, I can't believe no one's questioning that. We should be questioning that. And they said as many as 40% of people in the United Kingdom, that's Britain, England, etc., for those of you that don't use the term United Kingdom for whatever reason, um, may have already contracted COVID, have already had it, developed resistance to it, not is highly subject to reinfection. They, they, they do believe you can be reinfected with COVID, but you should fight it a lot better. It should be a lot more mild the second time around. There's a lot less propensity, etc. They also think some of the people they think maybe were reinfected were just never fully clear in the first place. But there's definitely a resistance because they're using, one of the therapies they're using is the blood of a previously infected person and then kind of they do some stuff to it and then they give it to a person who's having problems and it helps them fight the virus off. Well, Britain is about to go into antibody testing mode. The first tests will go to mostly first responders and medical personnel, which they should. But we're talking millions of tests becoming available. And people are like, this is it's just going to all sell out in 15 minutes. It probably will from people that want to know if they've been infected. It's going to be a little finger prick test, kind of like a diabetic finger prick test. You prick it, test it, in 15 minutes you know whether you have already had COVID. What if five where 10% of the U.K. has had COVID in the past already, if it's already moved through that much of the population. Not 40, just 10, 15%. That would mean that it's probably likely that that number would hold true in most of the United States. And I know what you're going to say. Then what about the giant surge in medical capacity in places like New York City, Detroit, and Seattle? 
it doesn't mean that can't happen. The two things are not mutually exclusive. And I will talk about that in my segment today. And I'm going to use a quote of the day that's not about the exact same thing, but it's a way to think about this, like an iceberg. Here's what Ernest Hemingway said about writers and icebergs. He said, if a writer knows enough about what he's writing about, he, he may omit things he knows. The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one-ninth of it being above the water. You look at an iceberg, you see a ninth of what's really there. The rest of it's below the surface. We accept that about icebergs. Maybe we need to start considering that when it comes to something like COVID, where we know not only are 80% or more of the cases mild, but a significant portion, even of the ones we find, are so mild as to go completely undetected, even by the person that has them. More on that when we get to my segment. What Hemingway was talking about here, though, is a writer or a content producer, is you don't need to say everything you know. You need to say the most important things you know. And those who will truly appreciate things that are hidden will then be sent on a, a journey to discover them for themselves. That's something that we're lacking in our education system in America today. The concept of telling children or young people what they need to know only and then incentivizing them to discover more. That's why people are so easily led. That's why you can give people a graph or a chart and they just accept it rather than start to question, how did we get here? What about this? Why isn't there an answer for that? It's a very dangerous point in society where people just accept things. Even, even when what you're being told might be 100% accurate, we should still be questioning it. Things that are accurate, things that are backed by fact, things that have a basis in reality can handle analysis. When people fear you analyzing, their claims. When people feel you fear you questioning their claims, there's only one reason. They're not certain of them themselves. It's my thoughts on that. But we'll get into it more when we have my segment again on code, the COVID denominator, the Oxford model, and more. Before we do that, let's hear from Doc Bones on N95 masks. And hey, some people are saying you should go shave so you can survive. Um, I don't know that that's going to happen for me anytime soon, but Doc Bones, what do you say? How does facial hair affect N95 masks? Hey, Joe Walton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. This week's question for the expert council comes from Tim Cook. Tim says, question for Doc Bones and Ursami. I know that it's recommended to be clean shaven when wearing a mask. What are some compromises or other options that people with facial hair can use? Tim, if the current outbreak expands and hits your community, you may find a lot of people wearing face masks out in public. The success of preventing infection with face masks depends a lot on having a proper fit, something that you can see me demonstrate in my video, Face Masks Part 2, on the DR Bones Nurse Amy YouTube channel. Your question is about facial hair, and you're right, Tim, in that some facial hair may be acceptable for a good mask fit, even though it's recommended that you be clean-shaven. Clean shaven. There are many different facial hairstyles, from clean-shaven, stubble, and long beards. Boy, I have in front of me a page that shows me more different beard and mustache styles than I knew existed, with names like Garibaldi, Verdi, French Fork, Zappa, Painter's Brush, 
and about 40 more. Without going over each one individually, just do a simple test. If your facial hair goes beyond the border of the face mask, it's not going to give you a proper fit that's going to prevent airborne disease-causing organisms from penetrating and contaminating you. Put on your mask and see if any facial hair, even stubble, goes beyond the edges of the mask. If you have a full beard, you may have to go to a mustache or maybe a goatee. If you trim to a goatee, make sure your chin and cheeks are not involved. If you see any part of your facial hair with the mask on, it's no good. Tim, I'll bet you look pretty good with a soul patch or maybe a pencil-thin mustache. Give those a try. They'll be fine with face masks on. If you insist on keeping that snazzy full beard, though, you'll be the most fashionable patient in the isolation unit. This is Joe Alton, MD, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to check out our Survival Medicine Handbook, our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, all about bacterial disease and fish antibiotics and Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right, next up from Doc Bones yet again, um, getting the most out of your annual checkups. And uh, I'll have a few words on this one, too, uh, after we hear from old Doc Bones. Hi, Joe MD here, also known as Dr. Bones, founder of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, as well as an entire line of medical kits and supply at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Jason E., who writes, Dr. Bones, I want to be here as long as possible. I rarely go to the doctor except when I absolutely need to. What are some things I should talk about or look into when I go for a yearly exam, which I have never done up to this point? I'm 43, 228 pounds. Blood pressure is in normal range for me. I've lost some weight due to lifestyle and changing the way I eat, and I'm working on dropping another 15 to 20 pounds. Jason, I'd like to be here a little longer also, and I'll tell you, exercise and a good diet is a great way to accomplish that goal. You should always shoot for a normal weight for your height and age. You didn't tell me how tall you are. At 228, you could be a good weight, or if you're 5'2", well, have a big problem. Your family doctor should always ask you questions about your diet, your level of activity, family history, social history, things like smoking, and of course, any symptoms that you may be experiencing that concern you. You should always be able to talk to your doctor honestly and frankly and not worry about being shy. Nothing's worse than a patient who gives the doctor just part of the story, and there's nothing worse than a doctor that doesn't give you the same advice they give a member of their own family. That was my philosophy throughout my career, and if you don't think you're getting that from your physician, well, it's time to change physicians. It's probably a good idea to get some tests done, things like blood sugars and other kinds of basic tests that are done in people once they hit the age of 40 or so. Ask your doctor what the standards are for those kinds of tests at what ages. In the meantime, work to improve your immune system. Boosting your immune system increases your ability to fight infection and disease. That's something that is on a lot of people's minds these days, that's for sure. You may have to adjust your lifestyle to get the most protection. Replacing bad habits with good ones will improve your ability to fight infection or at least recover more rapidly. Some methods include getting more sleep. Today's high-stress society can have a detrimental effect on your sleep pattern. People who are sleep-deprived are at risk for all sorts of health problems, not to mention impaired judgment. 
Although scientists aren't certain why, not getting enough sleep can lead to higher levels of stress hormones like cortisol. Inflammation is also thought to be increased. So sleep is very important. It's great that you're exercising, Jason, because moderate exercise can help your immune system fight infection. We're not talking about extreme physical exertion. Just a daily 30-minute walk might be useful to decrease your chances of getting infections like the common cold. Exercise is also known to increase endorphins, chemicals that help to relieve pain or stress. Nutrition is very important. You need better nutrition. Consuming too much sugar curbs the immune system's ability to attack germs. This effect seems to last for hours after consuming sugary drinks, so it's great that you are changing your lifestyle and changing your diet. Adjusting your diet to eat more fruits and vegetables rich in vitamin C and E, beta carotene, and zinc decrease your vulnerability to not only infection, but many chronic illnesses as well. Go for a wide variety of brightly colored fruits and vegetables. These are usually high in antioxidants. That's a really good thing to have in your system. Berries would be a good example. Of course, high stress levels are an issue. Stress is part of life, but too much, well, that makes you very vulnerable to illness. Too high a level suppresses the immune system. That is well known. It's possible that you may have limited control over the amount of stress to which you're exposed. I can say that happened to me for many years as a practicing physician, especially late at night in the emergency room. But there are simple ways to lower the amount. These are just some. Meditation yoga, massage therapy, exercise, like we mentioned before, slowing down a little bit. Hey, sit down, read a book. And of course, if things are really tough, you might consider getting counseling. And of course, get rid of some of those bad habits. Avoid smoking. Across the board, smokers have less ability to fight respiratory infection than non-smokers. Stop and get help immediately. Other vices like drinking should be kept to a moderate level. Jason, it seems like you're doing okay. And for the next 20 years or so, hopefully, the yearly exam is all you're going to need. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for watching. Hey, a big thank you for subscribing to our website at doomandbloom.net and for checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of books, medical kits, and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Um, as many of you know, between August and now, I have shed over 50 pounds of body weight. Now, I've done that primarily through a ketogenic diet. I do believe, I do believe that it is one of the best ways to take control of your weight. I do believe it may be the most sustainable way of eating that there is. And I say that having been a person who's gained and lost weight several times throughout my life and saying that not only was once adapted to this way of eating, it easy to do. But it's been easy to maintain. I don't have any problem maintaining it. But what I really want to say is I don't care how you do it. If you are significantly overweight, it's probably a good idea to change that in your life. I'm going to give you a few reasons. The first and most important reason as far as motivating yourself, you'll be happier. You'll be a happier person. That's as self-interest as it gets. You will be happier. I promise you, no matter how much you've convinced yourself that you're happy with the way things are, if you are significantly overweight, you will be happier if you're not. Number two, you will probably live longer. The biggest killers in the United States are not COVID viruses. They're heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and kidney failure, and other organ failure. 
and almost all of them are either directly caused by or exasperated by obesity. So you'll live longer. Three, you'll be more likely to get through crises like the one we're going through right now with COVID. You keep hearing that the people that end up in the worst shape with the COVID virus are people that are elderly and have underlying health conditions. There's a lot of people that fail to realize that obesity is an underlying health condition and would be classified if you died of COVID as a comorbidity. So not only would you be more likely to live longer in peacetime, let's say, but you're, you're likely to live longer in time of crisis like now as well. And I think it makes it easier to be a prepper. Especially if you get on kind of the two meal a day cycle like we are with ketogenic eating. What we found is like there's no need for us to ration our food. I, I noticed this early on when I, when I got on this train. That all of a sudden we were eating less food. Just in total. Like things that I was like, oh, I'm really looking forward to eating that. Even though it was ketogenic and I could eat it, it, it I didn't really eat it. Like, we just eat less frequently, so we eat less food. And it's done so easily that you end up like, man, i got to make time to eat that. I'm not kidding. Like, I'm really careful how much I take out of the freezer at one time now. I, I mean, really, like, you know, you take some salmon out, and you're like, man, I'm, I need to cook that. And uh, I got leftover steak for lunch today, and then tomorrow we're doing ribs. And I, I, where it used to be that, like, we just flew through food. So I, I'm really going to... Just suggest, because I've, I've, I've tried real hard not to have a messiah complex about this and say, because I did it, you should do it, or whatever. I'm just telling you, the, the difference in my life is such that I didn't realize how negative the influence was until it was gone. You know, the fact that now I, I go out in my garage to where my weight bench is, and pick up a 45-pound plate and think in my head, I lost more than this weight. It's incredibly lifting mentally. And a big part of the weight management, too, is mental. And I don't just mean getting mentally right so that you can. I mean that when you get in better shape, your mental state gets better. And we need to start looking at health in this country a lot more holistically. It's not just physical health here and mental health over here, and spiritual health over here. And you could even be an atheist and have spirituality in some way of human spirit. So however you define spirit, spiritual, mental, and physical health all go together. Our attempts to separate them have given us a very skewed vision of what humanity really is all about, and it's caused a lot of our problems. I'll leave it at that. Let's go on. I have a question now for Nick Ferguson on windbreaks. Hey everyone, it's Nick Ferguson coming to you from quarantine in the middle of the Piney Hills of Louisiana. I hope you're all handling this just fine because you were prepared. We are pretty much unaffected by this blip on the radar except for some minor inconveniences like I wanted some lemon juice for lemonade and couldn't get it yesterday. So let's get straight into the question of the week. Troy Golden says, my dad wants to plant cypress trees as a windbreak on the backside of his property. Instead of buying all of the trees he needs, can we propagate cypress easily? And is there any other trees you would recommend besides cypress as a windbreak? Something drought tolerant after it's established. Well, <clears throat> I'd probably go with two to three species of trees for a good windbreak. 
If you stagger all three species together, you'll end up with an effective break and a much better chance at having year-round control of the wind blowing across the property. I have very few details to go with on this one, so it's going to be kind of a short, generalized answer, but I have three species to suggest that are drought-tolerant and should do well for much of the USA. No idea if they're going to work for you, though, so I suggest checking with your local NRCS agent for suggestions on your specific location. There might even be grant money available for planting those trees if you have a mind to get back some of the taxes they took from you. <laughs> so I would look into hackberry, that's Celtis occidentalis, Chinese or lacebark elm, they're the same thing, that's Ulmus parvifolia, and scotch pine, that's Pinus sylvestris. And you can use really whatever trees you would like. You might want to just go with exactly what your NRCS agent suggests. Like I said, they'll be able to help you with what works best in your environment. And since I don't know where you live or what the rainfall is like, conditions on the ground, I'm really limited in my ability to help with specific recommendations. I do really like those three species for windbreak, though. So... What you're really wanting is a couple deciduous trees and an evergreen or two. I like to pick one fast-growing tree and two slow growers or two fast growers and a slow grower. I like to have a mix and at least one deciduous and one coniferous. So try and mix it up. That way you're covering more bases. And if one of those species doesn't work really well or presents a problem in the future, you can remove them and still have something else there to take up the space. As for propagating the trees cheaply, most of them grow great from seed. I order most of my tree seed from Sheffield's Seed Company. Just follow the directions on each of the tree species for cold stratification and warm stratification if it's called for, and you should be good to go for starting from seed. I'd probably grow them from seed for a year in tree tubes or liners and then transplant them out to where they'll live the rest of their lives. Alternatively, you can mulch the area well, you know, prep it, and plant the seed directly into the windbreak location in the fall and grow the trees directly in the ground where they'll go through their cold stratification and warm stratification requirements, and they'll just need to be thinned as they grow larger. So you're going to end up planting way more than you need, and then you'll just go through and thin them out. So I'd probably go with like three rows of trees, you know, spaced out, you know, three to eight feet, 12 feet apart. Just make those three rows, and then you might even want to just mix all the seed together so that you have it all mixed in, and then you just thin out the trees that you don't want. And if you go with that uh, last version, you may want to install a temporary fabric windbreak, uh, like plastic or fabric, uh, geotech fabric kind of stuff, that's at least two foot tall to shelter the seedlings from the harshest winds until they get established. So I hope that helps. I'm Nick Ferguson, and you can learn more over at homegrownliberty.com and rareplantstore.com. Do good things. Next up, let's hear from Jessica Dixie Mills uh, about gators. What are gators, and why might you consider them as part of your hiking kit? Hey, TSP listeners, this is Dixie from over at Homemade Wanderlust in YouTube land, and today I'm here to answer a question from Dawn in California. Dawn asks, can you give any tips for hiking in thick, dry western brush? 
specifically how to avoid burrs, thistles, and foxtails from getting into my boots and socks. I have a serious problem with foxtails and burrs in the dry foothills of California. Lately, I've been scouting and hunting for deer and pig over some tough hilly terrain. I don't mind the steep hills, but my hiking boots and socks get completely covered in burrs and foxtails, which eventually work into the fabric and laces and start poking me as a hack. It's really hot here during my deer season, 90 to 100 degrees commonly, so I like to wear something light and breathable, but I found anything mesh is a magnet for the stuff. Am I going to be forced to buy full leather boots? Is this the only solution? Thanks in advance for any help. Well, hey, Don, first, thank you so much for your question. I've got one suggestion for you that might help, and that's gaiters. For those who aren't familiar, gaiters are tubular-like pieces of fabric that slide up your leg after putting your socks on, or I guess it doesn't quite matter the order, but I always found it when I was testing them out to put on my socks first and then slide the gaiters up on my leg, then put my shoes on, and then the gaiters attach over and to the top area of the shoe. So they kind of hug your shin, ankle area, and then go down over the top of your footwear. Now, most people who get into hiking in three-season weather mainly use these to keep debris out of their shoes, like pebbles and such. Actually, the first time I saw these used was when I was through hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I think some people find them more useful than others, and it, it probably has to do with the gait of the individual. I don't prefer them just because it's something else to tend to, but some folks swear by them. And the way you can tell if they might be useful for you is that if you find yourself pulling off trail side a lot to dump crud from your shoes, just debris and stuff that's irritating you, then you might want to try them out because they just help, you know, from that stuff slinging up while you're walking. And these that folks use on through hikes or in three season weather are commonly made out of a stretchy, breathable type material and then in winter, people often wear gaiters that are a little more durable and heavier, a waterproof type material, and that helps keep snow and rain from falling into their shoes. And then this is often paired with some type of Gore-Tex shoe uh, to keep your feet dry in temperatures where hypothermia could be an issue, even though, yes, it can be an issue in warmer weather, but generally folks who are out hiking and, and backpacking and stuff are mainly worried about this in, in colder temperatures. So anyway, they make several different types and lengths and out of different materials. So Don, before you go to full on boots, I'd try a set of gaiters with your more breathable footwear. And you're obviously going to want to get something that's somewhat durable like because those burrs and things will just snag on that stretchy material of the gaiters that people typically wear on a through hike. So you're going to need something a little tougher, but I'll send Jack a couple of links to put in the show notes with information and different selection of gaiters. I know Outdoor Research is a pretty good brand, but I'm sure there are a lot of others out there. REI probably even has some that will work for you. It's at least worth a shot because I think the comfort of having a breathable shoe when it's hot outside and, you know, when you want to be comfortable and you're doing a lot of miles, I think trail runners and, and more breathable shoes are just all around more comfortable 
uh, than full-on hiking boots. So anyway, hopefully that'll work out for you. Thanks for sending in the question. And if anybody else out there has any questions about hiking, backpacking, vlogging on YouTube, feel free to send them my way. Take care, y'all, and stay safe out there. And I do have several links that Jessica provided to go along with her uh, segment today in the show notes for you. Next up, let's talk to Derek Bonpietro about diesel fuel and diesel additives and what to run in our trucks to make them last as long as possible, specifically trucks that are kind of in this kind of donut zone or something, I guess, or this is blip zone. Like we have regular old diesel trucks that were the way they were forever, and we got new diesel trucks that we have to dump DEP into. And in the middle, we have trucks that were specifically designed to run on low, low, ultra-low sulfur fuel, but before the days of DEP. How does this all play together, and how do we get the most out of the longevity of our trucks? With that, Derek, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com, broadcasting from New Hampshire in my toilet paper tent. I've got a question from Steve in Minneapolis about some diesel trucks. Let's get into it. Steve writes, do you recommend fuel additives for older trucks that were designed to run on pre-ultra-low sulfur diesel fuels? Details. I've got two Ford 7.3 Power Strokes, a 1997 F-250 with a 180 on it, and an 01 Excursion with 240. Begin this past summer, the 97 F-250 is now kicking out a plume of white smoke on cold starts, so I suspect it's dripping fuel injectors, which might benefit from an additive to enhance the lubricity of today's diesel fuels. I recall hearing recommendation of adding a quart of ATF, 520 engine oil, or two-stroke oil to a full tank of fuel every now and then. I also see an expansive list of other fuel additives on the market, so I'd love to get a recommendation. So on this one, uh, I want to back up and kind of talk a little bit about some of the smoke that's causing uh, some concern on the diesel engines. I want to talk a little bit about how diesel fuel systems work for listeners that are a little unfamiliar with it, and then I want to talk about the additives. So let's back up with the smoke. Diesel engines can create a couple different uh, colors of smoke. White smoke could be unburned diesel fuel, which could possibly be from a glow plug system not working correctly, unburnt fuel, so that dripping injector or some type of injector issue, and you're getting unburnt fuel coming out of the exhaust. Also could be some injection timing issues. Other types of smoke you get, a blue smoke indicates that you're burning oil, so, you know, turbo, turbocharger problems or uh, oil getting past the, the rings on the pistons could be that. And then black smoke is typically like an overfueling thing. So you've got a, a restriction on the air filter or the intake side, or your system's overfueling and dumping lots of fuel into the exhaust and going through the engine. So different types of smoke. So now let's talk about diesel fuel. And diesel fuel today is very different from diesel fuel uh, just a couple of years ago in that a lot of emission components in the middle of the 2000s started to become added onto the uh, exhaust of the diesel engine to clean up. And obviously, to do that, you need to have a good fuel that's not going to pollute and plug, plug those systems up. So ultra-low sulfur diesel came out roughly around 2006 for any kind of on-road and off-road equipment. And now you could still get like marine and some other types of diesel fuel that would have good sulfur content in them, which is great for the engine, but really bad for emissions. By around 2006, a lot of that stuff was going away. So going back all the way to the early 90s, you could possibly have upwards of 5,000 parts per million of sulfur content in your diesel fuel. And that's when the EPA started to regulate it and try to bring it down. And then 06 is really where it was crunched and it had to be no more than 15 parts per million. Now, sulfur actually lubricates the injection components in a diesel engine. And so if you're unfamiliar with the components, you have a mechanical lift pump on an older engine that would bring fuel 
up to the injection pump. The injection pump on that power stroke on the older 7.3s would be in the valley of the engine, and it's a big mechanical device that has what appears to be like metal tubing. They kind of look like brake lines coming out, and those go to the injectors that inject the fuel directly into the cylinder under compression. So we're talking about lots of pressure here, very, very precise timing, and this stuff has to work really fast when the engine revs up. And so all of these little components that have really tight tolerances require great lubricity. Otherwise, they'll score and burn out and wear, and then the pump starts to do really weird things or the injectors start to fail. And so the lubricity is key. Now, when you run a vehicle like this on ultra-low sulfur diesel, you can have lubricity problems. And so that's where really the additive package comes in. So stock off the shelf right at the pump diesel fuel is very what we call dry bad for the injection system. It's great for the environment and all the emission components, but it really, really taxes the injection components on the engine. So my personal recommendation as far as the additives go is I would use them. Uh, I personally use additive in my uh, military Cuck V uh, Chevy truck that has an older Detroit 6.2. And granted, I don't put a ton of miles on this, but I certainly want to treat those components being that it has a brand new injection pump. I, I want to make sure that everything is really kept clean inside of there. And a lot of guys try to run like waste motor oils and, and other types of additives and you know biodiesel is great but when you start to get into the waste oils and things like that yeah you can run that and you can cut it with diesel fuel and you can modify the systems but honestly like it really beats the injection system up and like what are you gaining so you might wear the pump out prematurely and then you're talking thousands of dollars but yet you saved some money by using some junk fuel is it worth it Personally, I don't think it is. So I like the additive package. I like to make sure that the fuel is very, very clean, there's no moisture in it, and that we have an additive package that's going to treat the injection uh, and pump and the injectors really well. You know, obviously that truck can go hundreds of thousands of miles, so we want to make sure that those, those systems are kept trouble-free. So Steve referenced called the Diesel Fuel Lubricity Additives Study Results. Say that three times fast. If you go on Google and search it, it's on a website that is J-A-T-O-N-K-A-M-3-5-S.com. So if you search for that and find it, you can open it up, and we'll kind of talk just briefly about it. Now, the results on this study is basically going to confirm what types of additives actually help the lubricity in the diesel fuel system and which ones don't, kind of like get rid of the myths and get down to the, the brass tacks, if you will. So what they do is they take a ball bearing and spin it in the additive and fuel, and so then they analyze this and look at it under a microscope, and anything over 520 microns of wear is just unacceptable. And that's going to represent wear and tear on your fuel system and the injection pump and injectors when you put it in the vehicle. So anything that has over a 520 micron wear is bad. And they tested the diesel, the ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel, just by itself, 636 microns. So it's actually over what the allowable limit is. Best one that had the best lubricity and under that 520 micron wear is a soy power biodiesel. So that was the best fuel just by itself, no additives, because it was just a straight biofuel. Turned out to be the best. Now, just going down the list roughly, they had an Optolube XPD additive, which was pretty low at 317, and then FPPF, which was pretty good at uh, 439. So obviously all of these are still under that 520 micron rating, so they're an improvement when you add them. And then obviously when they're testing it in this study, they're, they're diluting this, the fuel system with the additive according to the manufacturer specification. So there were a lot of additives. You guys can Google that and take a look. Uh, an interesting note is that there was a SuperTech outboard two-cycle engine oil. It's a TCW3 oil. And uh, it's not rated to be a fuel additive. Obviously, it's for a two-stroke engine. But there was an improvement. So that will actually work. 
but obviously not for emissions compliant vehicles. So anything over the you know mid 2000s that have the big catalytic converters probably wouldn't throw that in there. Page eight of the results uh, really gets interesting. Used motor oil, Rotella 15W40. Uh, obviously, it's not compliant. Didn't really do anything. And then you start to get into the additives that that actually make it worse, which was really crazy, like Lucas and then Milligan Biotech fuel conditioner, Marvel Mystery Oil. I don't know about that one, but Valve Tech Diesel Guard and Primrose Power Blend. Some of these I've never heard of, but obviously, like go through the results and then pick some of the better ones if you know you, they're available at your gas stations or auto parts stores, and and definitely throw those in there. They're going to extend the life of everything. Well, Steve, I hope that answers your questions. Uh, that 97 F250 uh, with the Power Stroke. I think if you've got a drippy injector, you should probably just replace the injectors. And I mean, eh, just the parts on that is going to be about over a grand for some good injectors. Um, but it's probably best to just replace that and get that problem solved. I don't think an additive is going to help with that. But once you get some new injectors in there, keeping that fuel nice and clean with an additive package and some good filtration and removing moisture is going to keep that injection system going for a couple hundred thousand more miles. Thanks for the question, guys. Stay safe. Take care. All right, folks, with that, it's time for my segment today, and I will be live streaming this on Facebook. If you want to share just this segment, you can share my Facebook stream with your friends and family. This is going to be an important one because it's just really a way to think about what's going on and understand why maybe some of the doomsday predictions are just not accurate about total numbers of cases. And I know I have to say this. I don't like having to say this, but I do have to say it. I'm not speaking in absolutes, and in fact, today I'm thinking I'm speaking very much theoretical. Like I've, I've brought to you guys in the last two weeks a lot of absolute known scientific fact about COVID, about potential treatment options, about what's going on. I'm just theorizing here, but I'm in good company. I'm theorizing along with some experts, and I just want you to understand what we're talking about today is the COVID denominator. The denominator is how many people actually have. And have had this illness. The United States right now has 85,000 or 90,000 confirmed cases. Um, and I do want to point out, not every one of those is confirmed by a test. Some of those are what are known as presumptive. Meaning, we think you have it, we're just going to say you have it, go home, stay home, you're going to be okay. But if we even use that number, how many people really have this? Now, we know 80-85% by the numbers from all the experts, not just the contrarian experts. Everybody's saying 80-85% minimum will have mild, moderate, or even no symptoms. How do you find a person with no symptoms? I, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm asking a serious question. How do you find a person who is positive for COVID with no symptoms? Right now, the way we find that is... A person has symptoms enough to get tested, tests positive. That person has had direct contact, significant contact with another person. That person is somehow notified by, uh, by the medical establishment, by the state, by the person who was infected themselves and said, hey, hey, guess what? I got COVID. You should get checked out. That person is able to finagle somebody into giving them a test, maybe because they're a senator or really important or something like that, or because they just happen to have nearby proximity testing available now, and because they know they were in close contact, they go get tested, and holy crap, I'm positive. And then that person has no symptoms. That's the only way we find that person right now. It's really difficult for a person with no or even very, very mild symptoms in many instances to get a test due to testing availability right now. It, it is really, we're only uncovering that. We're only discovering that group of people 
because of the contact chain and then availability of testing and those two things coinciding. You got that? So when we say, well, there's X number of COVID cases, we're literally pulling that number out of our ass. We have absolutely no idea how many cases there are. I mean, we can guess, but we don't know. That number is almost irrelevant in regard to reality. Now, there's different schools of thought. Well, it's a pretty good estimate. Well, it's close enough. And, well, we have no idea. And I'm more of the school of we have no idea. That number could be off by 5x. I think even the people who are most conservative here say it's off by at least 2x. You can double it. Well, what does that do to your hospitalization rate, serious complication rate, ICU rate, and death rate? If you double the underlying number, what does it do to the total number and, and your resulting stuff that comes out the other side? Well, it cuts it in half. What if the number's 5x? And I'll tell you why I think that's not, that's not impossible at all. What if the number's 5x? And I'm talking linearly, so even as the number goes up, the 5x number continues to be there. Because of all those people, we'll never, ever, ever, ever test because we can't test everybody in the country. Then it cuts that number and divide it by five. You divide your death rate by five. You divide your ICU rate by five. You divide your ventilator rate by five. You divide your serious rate by five. You even divide your moderate, you know, moderate symptomatic number by five if the number of total cases is 5x. What if it's 10x? If it's 10x, which is not that far out of the realm of possibility, according to experts, then you end up with a death rate of about 0.2 versus 0.1 for the flu. You end up with double the death rate of the flu. That doesn't mean this isn't a problem. And I know what some of y'all are thinking. And I'm glad you're thinking. I really am. I wish more people would think. Okay, then how do you explain these clusters... This huge impact, and all of a sudden you got a doctor in New York City putting two people on one respirator. You got a doctor in New York City coming out today and say it's hell on earth. I've never seen anything like this in my life. How do you get that massive surge in there if what you're saying is true? If it's been around a lot longer, if people have been spreading this since January instead of three weeks ago? If these numbers are such that you say that there's 10 times as many or 20 times as many, a uh, researcher in the U.K. behind the Oxford model says many as 40% of people in the U.K. may have already had COVID, already had it, done with it, finished. Less likely to be reinfected, less likely to be a carrier, less likely to be a spread. Pretty much can go back to living their lives. Very, very low risk. How is that possible? Well, it is possible. And it's possible because we don't know how many cases of respiratory illness that were in hospitals for the past four months were actually cases of COVID? We don't know. And we can't pretend that we know. And it sucks that we don't know, but we don't know. But what we do know is this. If you want to understand this, you have to think about this like a pyramid-shaped iceberg. Now, no iceberg is going to be perfectly shaped like a pyramid. Before our analogy, I just want you to imagine that you have a pyramid-shaped iceberg. And the top 15% of the iceberg is sticking up above the waterline. That's what you can see as far as serious cases for the first iceberg that we're going to talk about. 
You see those 15% of serious cases. There are cases like people are sick. Not all of them are super sick. Some of them are just at home and miserable for a couple weeks and say it feels like somebody's standing on their chest. It's hard to breathe, but that's the 15%. And we know that there is another 80, 85% below the water level. And we've surmised by the tip of that iceberg sticking out that other 85% is mild cases that aren't no big deal. Okay? Well, that's the model that is we're seeing pretty much all the cases right now. That's what all the doomsday predictions are, are based on, that model. We know that model's flawed. The people that, ha that stand up for that model say, well, it's probably double. Okay, that already makes the, the part under the water that we don't see twice as big. Well, it, it makes the tip, the piece you're seeing, half size relative to the whole. Do you get that? Do you get that? We're only seeing the cases that have symptoms enough or enough evidence for us to diagnose through testing that they exist. So what, we, what we're really seeing then is all the diagnosed cases are actually the tip of the iceberg sticking up through the water level. 100% of what we know is the part of the iceberg above the water level that we can see. The rest of it is the iceberg we can't see below the waterline. The bigger that is, the smaller the segments of the 15% we see are. The top, which is people that die, is tiny if the iceberg's big. The top, where people need ICUs, is tiny relative to the whole if the part of the iceberg below the water is really big. Now, the way that plays out with a cluster and an explosion in resource utilization in a place like New York is, imagine that iceberg is sitting below the surface and you, you don't even see the tip yet. And as that iceberg begins to grow, it comes up high enough in the horizon you can see the tip begin to come out of the water. That's where we have a few cases here and a few cases there. And all of a sudden the tip comes up a little higher and a couple of those cases become severe and they end up in an ICU and they end up on a ventilator. And you say, it began at this point. But if you need if you need 10 times or 20 times as many cases to on average produce one serious case, that iceberg grew an awful lot under the water before the tip came up. And it started long before we said it's here in this place. We have a cluster in this place. It started long before that. It could have went through thousands of people And just by hook, crook, luck, or missing the one that went to the hospital, we didn't see it. And then when it finally came up, we saw a little bit of the tip. But even the tip that was sticking up, we only saw part of it. Because testing sucks, etc. Now, that iceberg's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, bloop, up comes a really big tip. And inside that tip is your multiple layers. Your people that are sick enough to just go get tested and be pre or presumptively diagnosed. Inside that tip is your people who are really, really sick, but eh, they're going to be okay. Inside that are the people that we're at least putting oxygen into, people that we're putting in ICUs, people we're putting on ventilators, and people who die. That surge does not mean that the denominator is not bigger. It just means it needs a much bigger denominator to be pushed above the surface. Let me tell you a secret. All the experts are saying the same thing. The only thing that they're arguing about is how big the iceberg is. That's it. 
What I just gave you is exactly how an epidemiologist would explain it with the numbers we have based on 100,000 people having it and this number of people up here in the top of the pyramid being serious, moderate, very serious, ICU, ventilator, etc. All that happens is, is that the iceberg gets bigger, the, relative, the relativity of the serious number changes versus the whole. Now, this is more important than just statistics. It's just not so we can feel good and say, okay, well, it's really a death rate of 0.3 or 0.2 or 0.25% versus 2, 2.5, 3, 4, or some of the dumb mental gymnastics being used to get up to like 8. It's more important than that. It is directly proportional to how long this lasts. The bigger the pyramid, the more people it's already moved through, the more people it's already cleared through, And the sooner you're going to get to the backside of that curve everybody's talking about. Because again, what I'm telling you is not drastically different than what they're telling you on TV every single day. All that we're saying is, what are we actually seeing of the iceberg? And I've been saying this since almost day one of this. That the vast majority of these cases are undiagnosed, will go undiagnosed. Because if you're not sick, if you're being given a shelter-in-place order... You're sitting at home, you have no fever, you have no cough, you have no aches, you have no pains. Why would you go to the doctor right now and risk exposure from someone who is sick? Not just with COVID, but for anything. Wouldn't you want to stay the hell away? Don't, how many people out there that are watching the Facebook stream, and I know it's a few seconds behind, so I'll have to tell people on air too what I see here. If, if, if you would not go to a doctor's office right now unless you absolutely had to simply to protect yourself, there's about 88 people on a live stream. How many of you wouldn't go? Let me see the, the, the loves come up. You know, how many wouldn't go? I think most of you that listen on the podcast, you wouldn't go. And here comes the bubbles now, right? Yeah, most people are here in the thumbs. Here it comes. Boom, 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 boom. Like half the freaking people watching this. I ain't going. Look, they're, 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 it looks like there's more thumbs up and loves going off there than there are people in the dead gone stream. No one's going to the freaking doctor right now. And none of these countries that are testing, if you're not sick, you're not going to the doctor. And if you are mildly ill, you're probably not going to the doctor. And if you're mildly ill, in a lot of places, if you call up your doctors out mildly ill, they say, stay home. So you can't go. And all I'm saying is that we're likely to see this thing get really bad looking in the next week or two. By numbers. But it's going to start dwindling like crazy. And the way we know that is it where it has done its thing, it's what it's done. And even in a place like South Korea, where... We're, you know, we're so big on how, and they did a lot better job than we did with case following up, with contact and, uh, you know, con you know, tracking down contacts, testing, et cetera. They still only tested about 350,000 people. They have 38 million people. There's still a potential for four, five, six X, even in South Korea with all of the controls having had this, had it been mild and having it not been found. Now, I'm not saying this is the case. I want to be very clear. But it, it, I am in a way. This is the case. How much it's the case is what we don't know. Again, the people who are intellectually honest about this and not politicizing it, and God bless them for it, 
for not being political about it. Because we don't need anybody being political about this right now. Those people are saying, it's at least 2x. It's at least, like, they're all, it's at least 2x. So we already know that the denominator, the part of the iceberg we don't see, is at least twice as big as what we're saying it is. The only question is, how big does that number get? We're about to find out. Not in this country, because we still have our thumbs up our ass, sadly, in so many ways. But the UK has developed a finger prick test. We have one coming, too, for for uh, diagnosis, not for pre, you know, pre-having, by the way. And I think that's going to be out within a week or two, and that's going to help us a lot. Where you just finger pricking in 15 minutes, you know if you have the, the, the virus or not. But that, in our country, is going to be, do you have the virus now? Is it in your body now? The UK is about to release a test next week, and why we don't have it too, I do not know. Right? Well, we can't get it because they want it. We get one and make them here. We can make shit really fast if the FDO get out of the way. But in the UK, they're going to have a test. You can order it online. They will send it to your house. You stick your finger with it and put a little drop of blood on, and very, very quickly, you know not you don't have or didn't have uh, you don't have or don't have COVID. What you know is you did have COVID. You already had it. You have antibodies in your system to the COVID SARS-2 virus that causes COVID-19. The respiratory illness. They're going to have that in a week. First tests are going to first responders, nurses, doctors, etc. Because it's really important for them to know. I totally back that decision. Limited resources. It always works that way. But if they're going to have like 30 million of these things available within a week or two. And we're going to know real fast. Because people are going to order them. Wouldn't you, if you're on Facebook live stream right now. And if you could get this test and test yourself. And it was... 30 bucks to order it, and after it got to your house, you'd stick your finger, and that very day you would know whether you had COVID or not. Give me a thumbs up or a love or whatever if you would order that test right now. Boom, 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 boom. It looks like an explosion going off on my live stream phone right now, guys, that are on the podcast. Just boom, bam, 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 right? Of course you would. What do you think is going to happen in the U.K.? You think they're any different than us? You don't think they're going to order that test? What happens when 10% of those tests come back positive? Already had it. Doesn't that change the calculus on how we handle these lockdowns? It doesn't mean we don't lock down New York City, but maybe we don't lock it down quite the way we have. Maybe we definitely don't lock down Lawrence freaking Kansas, though. Or maybe we change how we put restrictions in based on this knowledge. Now, we don't do it yet. That's not what I'm saying. Because we don't know yet. But we're about to know. We're about to know how much of that iceberg is really there below the surface and what piece of the tip we're looking at. Because if if it's 40%, like the Oxford model says it could be, you're already seeing 40% of the total potential in the tip. You're already seeing 40% of the worst you can have. Versus 15. Do you see how that changes? That changes everything. It changes everything. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make it not a problem. But it makes duration, time, and methodology different. And the reason I think there's some credibility here is I have no doubt, despite the fact that I loathe almost all politicians, that someone like a governor of a state as big as New York knows things I don't know. Anybody here doubt that, that governors don't know things you don't know? How do you have Como coming out saying, you know, maybe I got this wrong? At the height of this, 
without him knowing something about, hey, more data is about to come out and it might change what we have to do. And I need to, I need to prime the pump so that when I make these changes, people don't think I'm throwing them to the, you know, to the wolves or something. So that's just what you need to consider when you hear this stuff. Like when Trump's saying, well, we're going to consider reopening parts of the economy on the 15th of April. That's still four weeks away, and people are screaming, wailing, and, you know, like it sounds like autistic level screeching, he's going to get everybody killed. Why? Because he's going to give governors control of their own states? You don't think if the governor of New York still wants to lock down an area once Trump says, hey, we can open some more of this up, or we're backing off our restrictions, that governor, governor can't keep those restrictions in place? Do you not understand how a republic works? But that's that's all I want you to think about. I just want you to think about the fact that the denominator is bigger than we know that it is. And they've been saying that in mainstream media for three, four weeks now. They just don't know how much bigger. And I just want you to consider this. If it's as transmissible as they say, if it really does spread as easily as they say, don't you think that means that that denominator should be a hell of a lot bigger? I personally do. And that's not going to change what I'm going to do. I'm still going to not let people get up in my grill. I'm still not leaving my little homestead any more than I have to. When I go to the store, I'm going to sanitize the crap out of myself, get what I need, get the hell out of there, not talk to anybody, not touch anything, not touch my face, and sanitize my hands again. But I'm also going to remain pretty damn optimistic between the drug therapies, how good social distancing actually does work, The fact the government has gotten off its ass pretty much and is going to do something economically, which I may not be all for, but it's still going to do some good for the ec economics and get us back on our feet faster. Maybe some bad long-term consequences, but it is what it is. got to live with it. Between all of this, I'm pretty optimistic. And again, the bigger that denominator, the lower the odds that any individual infected is going to have a real problem. doesn't reduce the total number in the now but it re drastically reduces the total numbers in the entire cycle. So much so that the guy behind the imperial model, the one that we've based all of our crazy restriction levels on, revised his prediction from a half a million dead worldwide to 20,000 just yesterday. And I'm not saying it's just like the flu, but I'm going to tell you a hell of a lot more people this year died of the flu than 20,000. I think that maybe that number, actually that's a UK number, I'm sorry, it's not worldwide, that's a UK number. That's still a lot of people. That's still a ton of people. That's still bad. But a half a million in 20,000, there's a little difference there, isn't there? And we need to figure this out. And props to the UK for getting getting their, their thumbs out of their ass a little faster than us, because I'm very much looking forward to that data and what it's going to tell us about the total infection rate not the total infected rate. Those are very, very different uh, numbers, and we need to look at them very, very differently. Well, guys, I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. I hope we're giving you solutions and real common-sense ways to think about COVID. Remember, please, if you end up with serious symptoms, you need to talk to your doctor about chloroquine and the other uh, treatments that are available. And uh, if you have, like, moderate to heavy symptoms, but you're not having to be in the hospital, you really need to talk to him about chloroquine and zinc and, and make sure he's seen the video by the doctor out of New York. 
Um, and if your doctor doesn't want to help you, maybe talk to another doctor. And if you live in Michigan or Nevada, you need to be burning down your phone lines to your governor's mansion because both of those governors have taken away the right of doctors to prescribe the chloroquine medication to patients unless they're in a hospital. It's disgusting. Politicians should not be making medical decisions. Uh, they really should. Medical decisions should be made by doctors, scientists, and patients working together. With that, if you like this show and the work that we do, remember you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, I've got a great item of the day for you. James White was on the show Wednesday about hydroponics. And he came back yesterday when I recommended the Rapid Rooter plugs and said, hey, if you're using Rapid Rooter plugs, you need to know about this thing. What is this thing you need to know about? It's a uh, It's pretty dadgone cool. It is a seed starting system made by a company called Hydro Farm. H-Y-D-R-O Farm Seed Starting Tray System and Heat Mat. And what he noted was the Rapid Rooter plugs I've been recommending, a 72-cell uh, plant tray, they fit in there like a glove. This is ironic to me because yesterday I was cleaning out my greenhouse, had some 72-cell trays in there, looked at one and said, Oh, and I stuck a rapid rooter. I was like, holy crap, it fits like a glove. So basically, you take this system, and what it is is a 72-count cell tray with a dome and a heat mat. And you put the rapid rooter plugs in there instead of dirt, and you add some nutrient solution to the bottom tray and set the top tray into it, put the dome on it, close the, va the, the vents, and start your plants with a light over them. And once all your plants are started, you pull the dome off, you grow them to a certain size, you pull them out and plant them either in another hydro system or in the ground. That's cool. The only thing you have to do is keep about the tray about half full with nutrient solution. So you got to do it daily while you're growing those plants out. Or what James said is you can put in like every third or fourth one uh, a plug and leave the rest of them empty and grow salad with one of these on a shelf with a light, with like one of the Barina lights. Well, that's cool. And then here's my addition on this. Why not both? Why don't you fill it up, put all the plants in you want, put in a certain number of lettuces and stuff that you want to grow out to maturity. When your transplants are big enough, yank them out, leave the other ones behind every third, fourth, fifth one, whatever you're going to do. Probably, I would say, every fourth one behind. And let it grow out, and then you have salad greens. Again, you just got to make sure you pay attention. Anyway... All the I haven't used this one. Every time I recommend something, most of the times I recommend something, I've used it. James gave full instructions for using this. It's in the write-up today. Check it out. Remember, if you want to make sure you get all the information that I put out and you don't miss anything, sign up for the Daily Mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click subscribe, and you'll get that. Last, remember, you can support this show by becoming a member. You get a ton of discounts. It more than pays for your membership at 50 bucks a year. But I have a discount sale going on right now for $25. The discount code is 25 bucks using the numbers two and five. So two five bucks, 25 bucks will get you 25 dollars off a year for as long as you remain a member of the MSB. So consider joining today. You'd also have known about that if you're on the Daily Mail. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up and, and talk about our song of the day. Again, we're doing Kenny Rogers week because Kenny Rogers recently passed away. Um, and as I've said all week long, if you're in your You know, 50s, late 40s, somewhere in there, a little older, maybe a little younger. You grew up or you were a young adult in the 70s and 80s. This music is part of your memories. Even if you weren't incredibly fond of Kenny Rogers, it w he was so big. 
He's one of those you know people that were huge that we don't think of as huge. And this song was enormous. It was a massive hit. It was on. It was again, like I've said, Kenny Rogers is one of those guys who was doing crossover uh, music before crossover was a word, where you know the country songs on the pop station or the pop songs on the country station. They were doing that with Kenny Rogers music before anybody knew what it was. And this song, this song absolutely did that. It's through the years. And again, it's a song, if you're my age, a little older, a little younger, it's almost inconceivable that you wouldn't know exactly what song, song I'm talking about when I say that, just because it was such a mega hit. How does it apply, though, to what we're dealing with right now? This song is, you know, the epitome of a love song. You've always been there for me. You've never let me down. I always knew I could count on you, etc. And I'll say, even in my own home, we're seeing some of the stress that goes along with these lockdowns and this quarantine and all this stuff. And you start snapping at each other once in a while. If you're in that situation, the place this song fits in right now is be good to each other and catch yourself when you're doing that. Say, I'm sorry. And when you're on the end of the sorry, if it's real, accept it. Because... We're the ones that stay with each other through the years. All of the things that we're fighting about generally have to do with people that are not going to help us or not have anything to do with our lives. And I got another piece of advice for you guys who might be a little bit younger and maybe don't remember this song. You know, you guys were kids of the 90s, and now you got your own kids and stuff. And you, you get all stressed out about the kids. Stay true to each other. That doesn't mean you don't take care of your kids, but stay true to, you, to each other. You put yourself and your, your, your spouse first. Now, your kids are a very, very, very close second. But this is back to the mask analogy, right? On, the, on an airplane, the mask drop, you put your mask on first because if you pass out, you can't get it on your kid. And if you pass out, your kid can't get it on himself or get it on you. So you put yourself first. It doesn't mean you're not taking that. You do it because you love your children. But when it comes to marriages and couples... There's another piece to this. No matter how consumed you are with being a good dad or a mom, your children will grow up, they will go out on their own, and they will leave you behind the way that they should. If they don't, you've not done your job right. That is your destiny. person that you do the job with, if you do it right, and you make it through and you don't become part of the divorce statistics, they're going to be the one that's still there through the years. With that, great way to wrap up on a Friday. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I can't remember when you weren't there When I didn't care For anyone but you I swear We've been through everything there is Can't imagine anything we've missed Can't imagine anything the two of us can't do Through the years, you've never let me down You've turned my life around The sweetest days I've found, I've found with you I've loved the life we've made And I'm so glad I stayed Right here with you
Loving. 